Isaiah 33. Woe to you, destroyer, you who have not been destroyed. Woe to you, betrayer, you who have not been betrayed. When you stop destroying, you will be destroyed. When you stop betraying, you will be betrayed. Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in time of distress. At the uproar of your army, the peoples flee. When you rise up, the nations scatter. Your plunder, O nations, is harvested as by young locusts. Like a swarm of locusts, people pounce on it. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with his justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Look, their brave men cry aloud in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways are deserted. No travellers are on the roads. The treaty is broken. Its witnesses are despised. No one is respected. The land dries up and wastes away. Lebanon is ashamed and withers. Sharon is like the Arabah and and Bashan and Carmel drop their leaves. Now Now will I arise, says the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I be lifted up. You conceive chaff. You give birth to straw. Your breath is a fire that consumes you. The peoples will be burned to ashes. Like cut thorn bushes, they will be set ablaze. You who are far away, hear what I have done. You who are near, acknowledge my power. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? Those who walk righteously and speak what is right, who reject gain from extortion and keep their hands from accepting bribes, who stop their ears against plots of murder and shut their eyes against contemplating evil. They are the ones who will dwell on the heights whose refuge will be the mountain fortress. Their bread will be supplied and their water, and water will not fail them. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. In your thoughts you will ponder the former terror. Where is that chief officer? Where is the one who took the revenue? Where is the officer in charge of the towers? You will see those arrogant people no more. People whose speech is obscure, whose language is strange and incomprehensible. Look on, look on Zion, the city of our festivals. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a peaceful abode, a tent that will not be moved. Its states will never be pulled up nor any of its ropes broken.
There the Lord will be our mighty one. It will be like a place of broad rivers and streams. No no galley with oars will ride them. No mighty ship will sail them. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. Your rigging hangs loose. The mast is not held secure. The sail is not spread. Then an abundance of spoils will be divided. And even the lame will carry off plunder. No one living in Zion will say, I am ill. And the sins of those who dwell there will be forgiven. I want to speak to you this evening about fear. There's much to fear, isn't there? In this world, in our culture, in our lives. I guess if I was to ask... What are the things people are fearful of right now? It wouldn't be hard, would it, to compile a list. For each of us, there are no doubt things that have kept us awake at night. Perhaps there are worries that you have, you lay awake about thinking about every night. We lived through two years uh, of fears regarding a pandemic. There's the fears of the virus itself which led to shielding, to lockdowns, to vaccine rollout, to to social distancing. There's been fear, on the other hand, of government overreach, the loss of freedoms, even fears over conspiracy. No doubt each will have a view on which fears are more legitimate or rational, but that's not my point. My point is we live in an age of fear. News organizations across the political spectrum, you know this, don't you? Speak to our fears Speak to the fears of the audiences at which they reach. Now, hear me well. Adrenaline is a gift. Fear can save our lives. God has equipped us with this amazing instinct, hasn't it, to flee with smart reactions. We've been given instincts for survival. Yet such is the age in which we live in that it is so easy to live as if we're continually bracing ourselves for the next gale, the next catastrophe. In fact, that's how we're told, isn't it? Things are. First COVID, then the war in Ukraine, and now a cost of living crisis. All of those things, all of those things are real. All of those things, to some extent, apply pressure upon our lives. But ours is an age where it seems that much of the atmosphere in which these issues are considered is in a perpetual state of emergency, like the deer caught in the headlights again and again and again. Everything is urgent. Everything demands immediate reaction. And consequently, careful deliberation, logical thought, and particularly empathy and love for neighbor, rather than simply ourselves, is subverted. Perhaps you disagree with that observation, but here's my point. What we fear drives us. Fear drives us. It becomes the priority in our decision-makings, the measure by which all else is weighed. Ultimately, you see, friends, fear is really worship. If you think about it, we fear things that are bigger than us, things we believe in any given situation to be ultimate that threaten in our mind to have the last word in our lives. 
Let me say that again, because that's really important. We fear things that are bigger than us, things that we believe in any given situation to be ultimate, that threaten in our mind to have the last word. Those things we fear. There are situations that we can all face. Some of you may have those in your field of vision right now that dwarf you. They are not small for any of us. Health concerns, financial uncertainty, exams, stuff your kids are dealing with, and the worry of the long-term impact it might have for them. They're not small things. They are so often bigger than us. We can't fix them. If we could, we wouldn't fear them. Our trouble is not that we make much of those troubles. Our problem is too often, isn't it, we forget God. Remember the disciples in the boat? The storm is raging. Jesus sleeping. Don't you care, Lord? Jesus' response, you have little faith. Jesus calms the storm. And then the disciples are really afraid. You see, as one author so clearly puts it, the real world, the real world, is the one in which the triune God is the central character in nature and history, and the illusion is that we are in charge. It is autonomy that is the myth, and the sooner we raise our eyes to heaven, the sooner our sanity will be restored. It is the fear of God that drives out fear, friends, of everything else. That enables us to walk well through real trials with clarity and perspective, with love and concern for others, even those who think differently from us, and with hope. I trust this world will encourage us individually with our own particular fears this evening, but also perhaps corporately. Of all people, we should be different despite the atmosphere of frenetic fear. We live in the real world. The triune God is our God. We trust in him. To learn that again, I want to spend these next moments in Isaiah 33. We're back in history around 700 BC, dark days for the kingdom of Judah. The superpower of the day under the kingship of Sennacherib. His armies are at the gates of Jerusalem after much of the Judean countryside has been ransacked. Here is a situation bigger than God's people. They had, in their fear, looked to foolish solutions in making alliances with other nations. Diplomacy has failed, and the whole land is a scorched earth under Assyria's iron fist. But in this final hour, God's people look up beyond human solutions to the living God, the Lord and his mercy. But this chapter does not portray a God who is there to step in and fix things for our convenience. How easily we treat God like that. As if he is a supporting actor in our life movie. As if the chief end of the Christian is to use God and enjoy ourselves forever. No, the picture of God in this chapter is there in verse 14 for us, isn't it? A consuming fire. You see, this passage is not a guide to problem fixing in your life. It is a call to orient your lives to this God who is a consuming fire. That is awe and reverence of the holy God who loves us 
and sent his son to the place of the skull in order to put us and the universe right with him. Friends, the, the, the events of Good Friday, the events we've sung about in the life of Jesus remind us that we worship a God who judges sin and justifies sinners. And we feel that in this chapter. To know this God by his grace is, friends, freedom. So let's look at this God this evening. Let the truth about him that these verses reveal us humble us, but also be our hope. So that, verse 6, of this chapter might be true of each of us. He will be the sure foundation for your times. For your times. A rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Firstly then, first heading, God is bigger than the things we fear, so trust him. Verses 1 to 6, God is bigger than the things we fear, so trust him. It's been said before, but if we want to capture the attitude to life that permeates most of our culture, it would be those lines penned by John Lennon all those years ago in his song, Imagine, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us, only sky. We inhabit a secular culture, don't you? That's the air we breathe, above us, only sky. Such an attitude holds out the idea of freedom, no heaven, no hell, no consequences. We are the masters of our destiny, yet such freedom is an illusion, isn't it? Because despite the denial of the transcendent God, we cannot take his place. We are not all powerful. There is much in this world that dwarfs us, so the fear thing. So the running after this and that to gain control, handing over our hopes and dreams to things that cannot liberate the irony is that by nature, since Adam's fall, we want autonomy to be gods ourselves, and yet we realize that doesn't quite work, so we gravitate towards other gods instead of going back to square one and entrusting ourselves to the one true God. We may worship our spouses as protection against loneliness and insecurity and until they inevitably fall short of the deity we invest in them. We may worship our children for the joy they bring until they disappoint, or the job for giving meaning and identity and dignity until we are demoted, made redundant, or simply discover it doesn't satisfy. We all have a sweet tooth, don't we, for some idol or another, depending on the main fear from which we trust it will save us from. The history of God's people in the Old Testament is a case in point. As I said, we find Judah in chapter 33 of Isaiah, serious turmoil. Assyria was a real threat, not only to Judah's material well-being, but also to their very existence. The northern kingdom has been wiped out a generation before. Assyria was to be feared, but such fear had worked in the hearts of Judah's kings, not to turn them to Almighty God, but to compromise after compromise, as they sought to buy off Assyria with tributes and promises of loyalty or at other times, alliances with other nations. Time and time again, they look for security and protection, material comfort, satisfaction, not in the God who rescued and established them, but in the illusory power of the surrounding nations. And when we meet Judah in this chapter, we are finally at the point where their experience is how empty these promises were. They have placed their hopes and dreams in the hands of others who could not liberate 
How many of us know such things personally? How many of us, like Judah, forget the lessons of the past in our anxiety, continue to look anywhere first but God? But here, in this chapter, Scripture presents us with a model for those of us who are slow learners. For finally we hear the voice of a believing remnant in Judah casting themselves upon God. Look at verse 2. Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in time of distress. Judah discovers as they look to him how much bigger God is even than the might of Assyria. Some of you will know the story. Let me just read the summary of those events from 2 Chronicles 32. As King Sennacherib and all the forces of Assyria lay siege, we read in a couple of sentences, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to heaven about this, and the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the commanders and officers in the camp of the Assyrian king, So he withdrew from his own land in disgrace. And when he went to the temple of his God, some of his sons, his own flesh and blood, cut him down with the sword. Look at the verses in our passage. Verse 3. At the uproar of your army, the peoples flee. When you rise up, the nations scatter. Your plunder, O nations, is harvested as by young locusts, like a swarm of locust people pounce on it. The Lord sends an angel... The terror of Judah is no more. Indeed, as verse 1 says, the betrayer is betrayed, the destroyer destroyed. As Sennacherib returned to his own land in disgrace, 2 Chronicles tells us his own sons killed him. The prayer of verses 2 to 4 does not detail Judah's rescue. Instead, it proclaims the truth about God. He is so much bigger than his enemies. He is so much bigger than our fears. You can depend upon him. You can depend upon his rescue, so trust him. Look at verse 5. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with his justice and righteousness. Zion was threatened by the biggest superpower of the day, but God is bigger. His purposes for Zion will not be thwarted. He will fill Zion with his justice and righteousness. He will continue to reign. And so, verse 6, what are we told? He will be the sure foundation for your times. To you, here this evening, Isaiah writes this, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He will be the foundation for your times. In the uncertain days that you walk through personally, he will be the foundation for your times. Church, in the days when the Christian message is increasingly scorned and oppressed, he will be the sure foundation for your times. He will continue to reign over his people with justice and righteousness. So as we think about our fears, is he your foundation? What is the key? And again, see what the Bible tells us, verse 6, the fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Again, see, this is not God is there to help you out of your trouble so you can live happy life according to your agenda. No, the fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure of a sure foundation in troubled times. It's the reminder to Judah that their hope was in humble 
trust in him, making him the center in their life. Not seeing how little they could have of God while still knowing his blessing, but instead seeing that he is the center. He rules Zion. His purpose is for that place would be established. His story is the one that history ultimately tells. He is the author of our lives. The fear of the Lord is not simply praying for your situation to pan out best, as you see best, but rather, not my will, but yours be done. Because we trust you, God. You are a rich store of salvation and knowledge. So friends, is that evident in your homes? If it is, it will mean you show up to church to worship him. The concern for his glory is demonstrated through the gathering of his people. As Andy encouraged you at the beginning of the service, it is demonstrated by gathering with the Lord's people to pray. It's not let's praise God because he'll give us what we want. It's verse 2, be gracious to us, we long for you. Can you say that? Secondly, God is holy. Evil will not stand in his way, so seek his face. God is holy. Evil will not stand in his way, so seek his face. As we reach verse 6, that speaks in such comforting way about God being a sure foundation for your times. That sounds good. Perhaps you are puzzled by the key to this treasure. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Sometimes we're told that it means respect, acknowledging that God is bigger than us. And yes, it is. But friends, it's more than just doffing our cap. Have you ever stood on a bridge over a massive waterfall in good mental health and wondered what would happen if you jumped and were swept away? Totally overpowered by the force and strength of the water. As you read verse 7 and following of Isaiah 33, we are meant to have us that sense of God. Verses 7 to 9 remind Judah of how it has been ravaged as it looked to human effort to alleviate trouble rather than to God. The need for God's rule is, ex- is exposed by expressing the total bankruptcy of the human alternative. Look at verse 7. Envoys of peace weep bitterly. There were no human solutions. God's power is displayed then, and it is awesome. Look at verse 10. Now will I rise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now will I be lifted up. You conceive chaff, you give birth to straw. Your breath is a fire that consumes you. The people will be burned to ashes like cut thorn bushes. They will be set ablaze. You who are far away, hear what I have done. You who are near, acknowledge my power. God's judgment is made known. His total adequacy to deal with all who challenge his authority and the welfare of his people. Yet as Jerusalem looks on, the object of God's deliverance, notice the response, verse 14. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who can of us can dwell? With this consuming fire. Who of us 
can dwell with everlasting burning. Isaiah wants to have this, us have this vantage of God's power and justice amidst the physical terror. A spiritual awakening is occurs through this question coming from the citizens of the delivered city. Not God's enemies, the citizens of the delivered city. Who can dwell with this God of holiness? Do you feel it? In what I think is my favorite of C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia series, The Silver Chair. Jill, who is suffering from extreme thirst, has been searching for water. And she finally discovers a stream. But there's a problem. It's guarded by the lion Aslan. The lion speaks. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It did not say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Friends, we only fear God as we experience him. Like those at the walls of Jerusalem, in the presence of his righteous judgment, we realize that we are not in charge and of our desperate need, terrified as sinners before the holy God, aware of his divine majesty, and yet equally aware of our need of salvation. Like Jill, her natural response might be to flee, but she cannot outrun the lion. And yet, at the same time, she is acutely aware of her thirst. The citizens of Jerusalem answer their own question in verse 15. Those who walk righteously and speak what is right, who reject gain from extortion and keep their hands from accepting bribes, who stop their ears against plots of murder and shut their eyes against contemplating either, they are the ones who will dwell on the heights, whose refuge will be the mountain fortresses. Their bread will be supplied and water will not fail them. It is not that these sinners, you see, are repulsed by the majesty of God. They long for it while all the time feeling their uncleanliness. Have you ever been there? 
friends, there is a purity of righteousness, holiness, justice, goodness and love that simultaneously beckons us and terrifies us. The one we want to run from because of our sin is the very one at the same time we want to run to. The need for mercy and forgiveness, grace and compassion is obvious to these people. And with that sense of need, immediately, in the next verse, the words of promise are given. Look there, verse 17. Your eyes, your eyes, sinners of Jerusalem, will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. If you understand that, if you felt that, you understand the fear of the Lord. Remember Simon Peter? Luke chapter 5. After the amazing catch of fish, he and his friends haul in. After following Jesus' command, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Our fears reveal to us that we are desperately thirsty people. But there is only one stream, and to find your thirst quenched, you have to do business with the lion. But if you do, friend, the things of this world, including our earthly fears, grow dim. You, your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. Do you see? We need to fear him before we can hear those words that Simon Peter hears from Jesus. Do not be afraid. And as you do, you will see thirdly, God loves his people. God loves his people. So in these days, wait for him. Verses 18 to 24, God loves his people. So in these days, wait for him. Time is going. And so I want us just to see the wonder of God's liberating rule as we fear him. Isaiah speaks of the oppressing invaders disappearing forever. Zion, the Old Testament city of Jerusalem, but also remember that symbol of God's forever people gathered to him forever is promised to be placed, isn't it, a place of peace and permanent security, never to be moved again. Fears are gone, immune from evasion. The ruling presence of the Lord as lawgiver and king will guarantee the salvation of his trusting people. Verse 18 In your thoughts, you will ponder the former terror. You'll look back at those fears that dwarf you now. And you will say, where is that chief officer? Where is the one that took the revenue? Where is the officer in charge of the towers? You will see those arrogant people no more, people whose speech is obscure, whose language is strange and incomprehensible. Look on Zion, the city of our festivals. Your eyes will see it, Jerusalem, a peaceful abode, a tent that will not be moved. Its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its rope broken. There the Lord will be our mighty one. It will be like a place of broad rivers and streams. No galley with oars will ride on them. No mighty ship will sail on them. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. Here is the story of history, friends. This must be the story which you understand, by which you understand your life, and by which you teach your children. The story of creation 
and the creator, of the fall and the righteous judge, of redemption and the redeemer, of restoration and the restorer, the God who made you and me, the God to which we have wronged and are so deserving of his judgment, but the judge has redeemed us, saved us, and promises to restore us to be the people that he made us to be in relationship with him. That is God's great work, not ours. See, as verse 23 says of ourselves, you're rigging. What a description for us. Your rigging hangs loose. The mast is not held secure. The sail is not spread. Judah is like a ship without sails, going nowhere. But God, who is rich in mercy, saves his people, gives grace upon grace. Then the abundance of spoils will be divided and even the lame will carry off the plunder. No one living in Zion will say, I am ill. And remember verse 14? The sins of those who dwell there will be forgiven. He is the one who carried away our sins, which is the literal rendering of verse 24. The people who have lived in it will have their iniquity carried away. Those who dwell there will be forgiven. Friends, purpose not only to love this story of God's redeeming grace to sinners, but to live this story. Not to be ruled by the fears of this life, but to battle in our hearts to set Christ before us in all his majesty and love. He has carried your sins away. God does not frighten us into submission. Instead, he draws us with cords of love. Godly fear turns out to be synonymous with love. As the psalmist says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Through faith in Christ, we no longer fear God's anger so that we can begin to fear him for his unchangeable and merciful promises, clinging to him alone and looking for no other saviour. This is true worship before the throne of grace that offers mercy and grace in the face of every earthly fear. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Shall we pray? Let's do that. Let me give you some time in the quiet of your own heart to respond to God's word, and then I'll pray in a moment. Father, we acknowledge how small we are, how weak we feel, how rebellious our hearts in our pride to look for other solutions other than you. Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. It deals with us, deals with us seriously, exposes our hearts, our fickleness towards you, but demonstrates again that if we would but come, 
there is grace upon grace, mercy for us, even us. The sins of those who dwell in Zion will be forgiven. Lord, you will be our shield and our protector. Lord, we thank you for the God that you are. Lord, thank you that your purposes in drawing us to yourself is not because you need anything from us, but because you have all the riches that we could need. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help our hearts to be satisfied in you, to taste again of your love for sinners, to realize your might and your awesome power and how you direct all of that in the rescue of sinners. You, the mighty one, who's taken on flesh and conquered death's sting, who stood in the place of sinners to demonstrate that you judge sin rightly and fairly but amazingly you justify sinners Lord help our hearts to feel the wonder of that so that we may know the fear of the Lord in all its beauty its splendor and love in Jesus name we pray Amen